Hey everybody and welcome to episode 66 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode I'm joined by returning guest Bob Nabandian. Bob was on last time talking about coming up in the 80s LA metal scene and watching Metallica at their earliest shows, being friends with Lars Ulrich. Since then he has maintained his rabid and passionate fandom of all things metal. He is the host of a great podcast called Shockwave Skull Sessions. He is also the writer and director of the Inside Metal documentary series. And his latest film, Bay Area Godfathers, explores the Bay Area metal scene of the 80s, including, of course, the thrash metal movement that Metallica was a big part of. So he came on to talk about the documentary, to talk about the Bay Area metal scene, and I cannot recommend this documentary enough. There are two parts. Part one is out now. Part two will be out soon in May. Check out the links in the episode description to order part one, pre-order part two, and just get more information. Without further ado, though, here is my conversation with Bob Nobandian about the 80s Bay Area metal scene. My guest today is the host of the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast, as well as the director and writer of the Inside Metal documentary series. His latest film, Bay Area Godfathers, part one is out right now, and part two will be coming out this May. Please welcome back to Metallicast, Bob Nobandi. And Bob, how are you? Good, Brandon. Always good to be back. I'm so happy to have you back. Last time... We dove into some firsthand Metallica stories from the early days, and this time I'm excited to jump more into the documentary and talk about the Bay Area scene with you. And I have to thank you, too. On your show, Shockwave Skull Sessions, you did a episode with Eric Braverman, who's always uh, an interesting, hilarious, controversial <laughs> guest. I've been lucky enough to have on my show as well, and you gave me a nice shout-out on your show, so thank you for that. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, Eric's Eric's a character, man. He's a black. <laughs> yeah. He came Very on. Very controversial guy, but you know, a lot of people. Oh man, that guy Eric Braven was like, "What? That guy speaks his mind. It's great. It's like you know, he's like an eighteen-year-old kid. You gotta love him. Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, you came on and he would say something. I'm like, should I leave that in? I'm like, of course I'm gonna leave it in. And then, but at the, you know, he's such a nice guy, so giving of his time. And then at the end, he's, you know, he busts balls the whole way. Then at the end, he's like, you know, I love those guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's funny because I was just on the last interview we were talking about 
uh, you know, the Bay Area Godfathers documentary and, and all the Inside Metal L.A. titles. And back then, 30 years ago, everyone busted balls and we're talking <laughs> shit about the other bands and the other people. And, uh, you know, he just kind of carried on that tradition. But everyone were friends. You know, it's funny. Cause, yeah. You know, we were talking even doing the L.A. ones, how competitive all the L.A. musicians were. And even the Bay Area ones, the the uh, competition between the glam and thrash metal. You know, right. once you do the interviews, you know, 30, 35 years later, talking to these guys they're like hey man you know everyone went through it man everyone busted their up but there's a, a respect so between the glam totally. guys the the thrash guys the power metal guys you know everyone had a certain respect for each other and 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 everyone knows that you know back in those days everyone busted their balls to get uh, you know to get to where they're at unlike you know the the you know the times now since the new millennium where everything's just digital you know back then you totally, had to tour yeah. you had to play the gigs you had to you know you would lose money you know a, a hundred couple hundred bucks you know to rent a to rent a van or rent a truck or you know and you wouldn't get paid for the show and you would have to roadie your own gear and you know and <laughs> right. uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, you know, but going back to Eric, he kind of still has that same mentality of, uh, mentality of like 30 years ago. And, and you kind of miss that, that competition, <laughs> of, of the, uh, you know, musicians and stuff. It just kind of keeps everyone on their toes, you know? And, right. uh, yeah, it was, it, it's hard to keep up with them. At least it was for me. I was like, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. That was a joke. <laughs> Cause he just keeps on going and going and He's going. And you're like, trying to keep, I'm like, I'm trying, my mind's trying to keep up with them. You know, <laughs> He's yeah. a sharp guy. <laughs> He's very sharp and very yeah. witty and, and just off the cuff, you know, he'll just yeah, yeah. off and, uh, uh, and go off the rails too. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned, um, you know, the hair metal scene, the glam metal scene, whatever you want to call it, and the thrash metal scene in both L.A. and the Bay Area. Uh, because I not too long ago, I had the authors of the book, Nothing But a Good Time on ah. uh, Metallicast. And you were able to contribute to that book. I, they gave me an advanced copy to check out before they came on. And I was like, Bob, oh, awesome. And uh, it, but it, we had the first thing they asked me before I started recording was like, so why do you want us on a Metallica podcast when our book's about hair metal glam? Cause I was like, well, there's so much crossover there, Absolutely. you know, that with the LA scene, the Bay area scene. And I was like, you know, I think in the early days, a band like Metallica would have, they acted out against that scene and those bands, you know, posers or whatever. But you know, if you hear uh, an interview now with Lars Ulrich looking back on those bands, you know, there's a mutual respect there because they all went through, especially the bands that uh, like Motley Crue and stuff that have had their success and have survived, you know, 40 years now. Absolutely. Well, again, you know, you look at it, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we were all kids. We were all, right. you know, uh, teenage kids and. Back then, the musicians, they had to fight for it, you know? So if whatever it took to get the good gigs, whether talking shit about the other bands, making them look bad, you know, uh, causing shit, causing problems, causing fights, whatever it took to get ahead, that's what you had to do, you know? And it was yeah. it's a whole different time back yeah, then. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. Uh, so many of the bands kind of look back. Uh, you know, you look at Metallica, their first Bay Area shows, they were opening up for bands like... You know the, the glamour hair metal bands, as you say. You know, Head On and Roadrunner right. and and uh, uh, you know Lost Rocket, who were you know a heavier band, but still kind of had that uh, uh, you know kind of half and half. They weren't they weren't thrash, but they were they were more I guess hair metal, power metal. But uh, 
you know, they were opening up for all those kind of bands. So, uh, in in LA as well, you know, opening up for sure. Rat Stealer and, yeah. and, uh, that, you know, so, uh, that's what it was back then. And that's, you know, uh, so yeah, there was definitely a tie-in and, uh, you know, and, and then later, you know, they, they toured with, you know, the Wasp Armored Saint tour and all the others right. and playing with, uh, uh, you know, so it was, it was, uh, that's, that's, that's the way it was back then. Sure. I mean, yeah. now you have package shows and you have more thrash metal kind of stuff and that, you know, that those package and those things came t- together, like, you know, in, in the late eighties into the early nineties. And those were usually, um, you know, the, the, at least the thrash shows were on the outskirts of LA, you know, at Fender's ballroom or the Olympic auditorium and, and those places where they could have a full on, you know, thrash metal show and, uh, uh, wouldn't have to deal with, you know, the venue. Uh, right. You know, yeah. yeah. So, but I was saying to them too, even, you know, years down the road in Metallica releases, the black album It's produced by Bob rock who, you know, did Bon Jovi, did Motley Crue and did all, you know, these bands are outside of the thrash scene. So, you know, there's just crossover and in, with the production and everything. And I'm sure there's some metalheads out there who would argue, you know, nothing else matters is basically, a nineties power ballad. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I mean, Metallica are smart. They're smart guys and they, yeah. and uh, so is their management Q prime. And I think they knew they kind of took that, um, the thrash thing to, to, uh, where they couldn't. And, and at that point, you know, after the, uh, uh, uh and justice for all record, you know, you know, you had Slayer, you know, putting out, uh, you know, Angel of Death and Jesus right, Saves yeah. and all these songs that were, you know, and, and, you know, Megadeth and all these Exodus and all these thrash bands going beyond what Metallica did. And, you know, at that point, they're like, look, we, we need we need a change. We're going to still keep keep it heavy and keep it, you know, a, a rock solid. You know, let's get a, a better producer and let's kind of try to get in, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, really by and justice for all, you know, they finally did their first MTV video and they started right. playing the arenas, you know. But, uh, you know, obviously when the Black Album came came out, they were doing, you know, from, you know, one night at the Long Beach Arena to, you know, five nights at the Forum, you know. So right. it was a huge, uh, huge boost. But, um, you know, I, I, I love that album. I remember when it came out, I was like, God damn, these guys did it right. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it was still heavy. You still had your heavy songs, right, yeah. you know. There were there were some stuff I kind of missed about you know I, I you know the you know the master of puppets kind of era and sure. stuff, but it was like you know they they progressed and they um you know they did what they could to take it to the next level and I thought they did it successfully. I you know was a, a lot more disappointed with the load releases. You know I thought mm. that, you know they they took it to one level and then they kind of went down a notch instead of taking it you know maybe even to another level or or doing right. something a little bit more interesting or a little bit more creative it just kind of you know but whatever that's my opinion <laughs> yeah <laughs> well to get into the documentary I, I if i remember correctly and i know that you were very uh involved in the la metal scene as a fan and um you, you have so many firsthand experiences from that time period but if i remember correctly less so the bay area Correct. Um, I, uh, you know, grew up, I had a metal fanzine called the headbanger, right. uh, in which I started in 82, April of 82. And my inspirations for that was Brian Slagle's uh, new wave of, uh, 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 new, uh, well, uh, new heavy metal review, right. uh, was his uh, metal fanzine. And of course, Ron Quintana 
from the Bay Area, his fanzine, Metal Mania. And right. obviously, I, I was very into the, the European. Uh, really, the original ones were, you know, Kerrang! And, and, and even Ardshock from from uh, Holland and all those that were, uh, uh, you know, more of a magazine level. Uh, uh, and there were some other fanzines through Europe. So all those those fanzines that kind of started in the very, very early 80s. Uh, and they were all, you know, it, it was such a... So, you know, because back then, now with travel and with, with Internet, anyone could talk to anyone in any country, you know, right, which, yeah. and, and see, a, you know, you could see the person or whatever. Back then, it was all about writing letters, you know, so we didn't know what sure. kind of music was going on there unless you traded tapes. And mm. uh, and that's what it was all about then. So that was really kind of the start of me getting to know the Bay Area scene, uh, mainly through Ron Quintana. That's how I discovered, you know, obviously Metallica were an L.A. band back then. So, you know, we are really mainly Pat Scott, uh, uh, my friend and I were the ones sending out Metallica demos, uh, r really pretty much Pat Scott. And, and those really spread like wildfire because by yeah. the time I would send them out to people, they would say, oh, I already got it from Pat or AJ this. <laughs> but it all originally came you know, from either Lars because Lars was sending them out to all these people as well, to the guys in Ardshock and everything. So every, everywhere, I mean, that, that just went like wildfire. So uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, that filtered over big time in, in the uh, Bay Area with Ron Quintana and KUSF and and his uh, right. magazine, uh, you know, fanzine, uh, uh, Metal Mania, of course, Brian Liu and, and Harold O. Uh, you know, they had started Whiplash. And then you had uh, Sheila Gray, uh, who's now Sheila Mars. She had a magazine, Heavy Metal Thunder. And so there were a lot of fanzines. And uh, everyone was into both the L.A. scene and, and the uh, San Francisco scene. And as close as San Francisco was to L.A., you know, surprisingly en enough, I didn't make it out to the San Francisco club scene anyway till like the late 80s. So after Metallica oh, okay, yeah. made it, we had we had chances, you know, numerous times. You know, uh, Lars invited us or people invited us out to go see him at, at the Stone and Patrick and I kind of talked about it. But back then, you know, to drive, you know, we were 16, well, 17, uh, 17, 18. But even then it was very, well, probably 17, I think, at the time. But to drive out to uh, the Bay Area and, and get a hotel and all that, it was it was kind sure, of expensive. yeah. So that's the one thing I regret. So I, I to, to answer your question, I was never involved in the early club scene, and that's why I got uh, my uh, producer John Stranansky because he grew up there. He actually grew up in Monterey. He had right. a great fanzine called Metal Rendezvous. Uh, who I was going to get to was another big influence. We uh, he started yeah. about the same time I did uh, uh, the Headbanger, but he carried on and made it an official full color magazine, like Rip Magazine through through the uh, early 90s so uh, awesome. he definitely took it to the next level and he saw all those bands in the clubs not just the thrash bands and that's what i liked about john is he had a very similar taste in in metal uh, as i did that we liked everything from you know the power metal to the thrash to the uh, you know the european style metal was our big you know thing the new wave of british heavy metal european metal and even some of the, the some of the glam hair bands so uh, john felt the same and so does danny shipman who's my other co-producer so they were very involved in getting me a lot of the access to a lot of these bands. Now, of course, I was familiar with all these, uh, not all these bands, but most of these bands through tape trading and, and everything else. Of course, the Exodus, you know, a Testament right. back when they were Legacy and, and Death Angel. So I was very aware of these bands and I had featured a lot of them in my fanzine and, and knew some of them. I saw a lot of them when they would come down to L.A., you know, when Exodus would play, the, you know, Fenders or or uh, you know some of the other clubs that that they would come down for. 
you know, Testament I saw many times. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was aware, but not, I didn't live the scene like I did in L.A. In L.A., sure. I, was, I was a huge, you know, part of the even though I grew up in Orange County, I would be up at the country club every other week or the Troubadour. And and then Orange County itself, man, we had so many great shows at the Woodstock and Radio City and the Concert Factory and the Golden Bear when that existed. You know, they had some great national bands. So a lot of those L.A. bands would come out to the uh, I would see them in Orange County. So it was like, yeah. you know, I, I was just saying to, to the other uh, uh, interview I did, I would say, you know, back then it was such a different thing. I was. You know, we, we were I was going out like four or five nights a week, you know, up through the early 90s, you know, and and that's, you know, when I was starting uh, when I moved to, up to L.A. in the early 90s, I was working for Roadrunner Records and Bizarre Straight Records. It was kind of my job too to go out and see. Right. So it was great. I was going out every night up out in Hollywood and there were some great, great shows and great clubs. You had all these different, you know, metal style clubs like the Cat House, Exposure 54, uh you know, uh, the, the beyond what well, the Thunderdome, which was the old Florentine Gardens. Uh, so there were a lot of different, uh, uh, you know, every night of the week had a different kind of heavy metal theme night, you know, and, right. and a lot of times you would see, you know, Lars and the Metallica guys would come out for some of these shows or whatever, you know, maybe yeah. at the cat house or wherever. So it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a cool thing. But back to what you were originally saying, it was kind of a, um, a community of all bands together. You, you know, at the Cat House, everyone associates that with a lot of the glam scene, which was, you know, heavily, you know, faster pussycat poison, that kind of scene. But, you know, they had Megadeth and and, and suicidal play there, uh, you know, as well as the grunge bands. I saw Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and bands like that play there. Uh, I believe Pantera as well. So, uh, and all those bands kind of got along, kind of didn't, kind of. <laughs> I think it was worse in, in the Bay Area with the whole poser thing because yeah. L.A. was kind of so consumed with the glam thing. It was just a part right. of it, yeah. you know, and, and everyone loved to go to the glam nights because that's where all the chicks were, you know, or, <laughs> or to go to the rainbow or the cat house because that's where, you know. So I think it was a little bit more separated in, in uh, San Francisco, although, you know, people have been saying that it really – um did come together and there was a lot of respect for people like Davey Vane, who was, uh, you know, yeah. obviously he produced uh, a lot of the thrash bands like, uh, uh, death angel and stuff. So, uh, right. uh, and again, all these bands, they started from, from the same era. They all busted their ass the same way. So I think, you know, nowadays you're going to, there's, there's a mutual respect, you know, whereas back then it was kind of like, ah, fuck you. You guys suck. You guys. <laughs> right. yeah. So, uh, well, okay. you hear a lot of uh, thrash bands that appear in Bay Area Godfathers talk about how, you know, they were friends. They ran the same circles on the outside. They'd be like, you posers, your music sucks. Yeah. But then they'd be like, yeah, but we're going to go to your shows because you have all the girls. We have all the guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that was the thing. A lot of thrash guys always said that. And that was the same in L.A. I mean, the, you would see. Yeah. You went at poison shows, you know. You you know, I won't mention names, but you see a lot of these thrash guys there, you know, friends right. like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't call anyone here, you know. <laughs> you know. I'm just you know, scamming on the women and shit, you know. But uh yeah, you know, that it, it was fun. I mean it was all it was all a party back then, so that's awesome. Now, John, if I'm remembering correctly from the documentary, because you were kind enough to share it with me, um, he, your co-producer there he was he the one with the green iron maiden tour jacket that lars ulrich tracked him down to ask him yes. about the jacket <laughs> yeah. yeah okay that's, that's <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. So he goes way back with the Metallica guys. You know, it's funny how it all ties together because we were all right from different. And again, Sam, you know, San Francisco and LA, you, you didn't, you, there were no way to communicate. Even, even phone calls, long distance phone calls from LA to San Francisco, you didn't talk much because it was, you know, you'd be on the phone for an hour and it would be, you know, 50 bucks, which is a lot of money back in 1981, 82. So it was all yeah. about kind of like writing the letters and stuff. So it was kind of funny when, when, uh, my buddy Pat Scott first introduced me to, uh, Lars and you know we met with him and uh, we went to his his condo in uh, uh, his mom's condo in in uh, Newport and you know I was mentioning all these names you know Brian Slagle and John Connor oh yeah I hung out with them I know them and <laughs> you know, oh you know this guy there's this guy in San Francisco he's got his fans he called Metal Mania yeah Ron Quintana I was up in San Francisco I was hanging out I'm like who is this guy how does he know and then you know he's like yeah I was in England I was hanging out with Motorhead and blah blah blah, blah. and uh, hanging out with Diamond Head. And then I go, oh, do you know, did you meet the guys from Metal Forces? They said, yeah, yeah, I know Bernard No, I know Steve, you know, Steve Hammett. What about the guys in Truck? Oh, yeah. It's like, dude, this guy knows everyone. So that was right. kind of, you know. But and I, I think I'm like clever, like thinking I'm knowing these, these people that no one else knows. <laughs> so you had mentioned going to, you know, the San Francisco clubs, uh, late 80s, early 90s, thereabouts. And you know, you watch the documentary and unfortunately because of the way things have changed, most of those clubs, if not all of them have been replaced by strip clubs or office or what have you other things. Um, it seems like there's a still a good chunk of the LA club scene that's still intact though. No. Well, yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, pre COVID. Yes. We'll see what happens now. I mean, even during, you know, of course, the House of Blues closed down, and that was actually pre-COVID. Oh, wow, yeah. uh, that was a big venue in L.A. Uh, and here, Slim's closed down recently, which was a big San Francisco. Uh, you know, I saw a lot of great metal bands there, you know, uh, right. Death Angel and uh, Exodus and uh, uh, Udo. And, and, you know, so that yeah. was kind of the metal place there. So uh, it's happened in a boat, but the Bay Area has drastically changed. I mean, even before yeah. COVID, the whole tech industry there's really not that metal scene whereas even in la you still you're holding on to you know the sunset strip clubs the whiskey and the rocks Uh although the roxy is i i believe it's owned or not owned but uh ran it out exclusively just through uh golden voice uh for like big shows or you know again i'm talking about covid uh so for years before you know uh before covid even hit the Roxy wasn't doing shows. They were just doing specialty like national acts that uh, they oh, would bring yeah. in and do some kind of filming or do mm-hmm. some. So it wasn't like they were, there was no local scene is what I'm saying. There wasn't like, right. and, and even the whiskey, they would have, you know, like uh rat or Steven Piercy or Dawkin or LA guns or Lita Ford or, or Tom Kiefer from Cinderella. People like that would play there, you know, mm. guys from the eighties. They, there wasn't, they weren't building a local scene because there were no local, a lot of local metal bands that were, um, you know, the last real era, at least in LA. Um, cause I moved out of LA, uh, a, a couple of times I moved back in, I, I moved in the early two thousands, uh, moved up way up to Northern California and Chico. And then, uh, throughout the mid 2000s, I was living, you know, uh, between Northern California and uh, and and L.A. Uh, it really changed, you know. I think a 2000 or so, late 90s. That's when you kind of had that that the newer metal 
seeing you know system of a down came out you had yeah. uh, you know uh, a drowning pool you had a uh, disturbed and i know disturbed not, aren't from la but uh, that that the static x and all it was like the sunset strip they became the new kind of sunset strip uh, uh, uh scene you know snot all these uh, different mm-hmm. bands and it was kind of pumping again and it was kind of like uh like it was in the way the 80s the, the strip would be packed and the whiskey and the roxy they would have a lot of good local bands and you know the stoner scene was starting to come out and there were and then you started getting you know like the easter the stoner scene and all that was more east la uh silver lake and there were clubs that were happening there and and you know in the late 90s uh, john bush and i and my buddy toby we did a show a, a, a club called the black lodge which was a blast man we we didn't know what the fuck we were doing we were just having fun you know i uh, just uh, doing a metal club and and that was at the old club lingerie right on sunset boulevard so yeah uh, you know that and that scene was kind of that kind of got up and going again for a little while through the early 2000s and then uh you know once the the tech shit all came together and the cds thing it just the the scene got lost and you know it's a shame so i I don't really know so much how it is in la it's going to be interesting to find out post-covid what's going to happen and what are they going to do with the whiskey and the roxy i know that they own the property and own the land there so they can't necessarily get kicked out but that is prime real estate so Mm -hmm. i don't know if they're going to hold on to that or not but um you know, it was funny when I was there in the mid 2000s, a lot of the strip clubs, because uh, I DJed at a few strip clubs and they were doing metal shows there and it was great. And they were having some pretty good metal bands. Promoters were coming in and having metal shows play with the, you know, the strippers and stuff. So that was uh, uh, and, and it was kind of more the newer, like kind of stonery kind of metal. Right. Yeah. It's, we're talking like 2009, 2010. So that, you know, it started to happen all up through there. I don't really know the LA scenes since I've been up here in, in the Bay area and as well as Sacramento for the last several years. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's all changed. I mean, we're all getting older. The young kids today, mm-hmm. unfortunately they don't, uh, I don't know if they don't respect live music or they, you know, they're just so spoiled with the whole, uh, tech industry and the internet and going on social media and whatnot that they don't, just don't uh, live shows are just not the same as, as it was, you know, when right. we were younger. So plus everything uh, is pretty much getting more corporate, you know, you from the stadiums to some of the clubs, you, it has to have like that corporate tie in with the, you know, what it's sure. called and, you know, everything is more and more controlled by, uh, you know, the, iHeartRadio and all that, all that type of stuff. So it's just getting more and more. Um, it, 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 what it comes down to is really you have a couple companies that are running it all. Oh yeah, Live Nation, Clear Channel, iHeart. Yeah. Like you say, those were the companies. And as you say, the corporations. It was funny. I think Dickinson uh, joked about you know how it, it would used to be. You know uh, the uh, uh, you know it, it's now like blockbuster pavilion and then it became a mattress place uh, sleep train sleep trainer bank yeah. one studio marengo casino and yeah. so it's, it's irvine meadows not verizon amphitheater i mean we all know it as irvine meadows like, you know. so it was uh yeah and that started god in the early 2000s yeah uh, if not the late 90s some of those where the corporations yeah. just started taking over the venue 
venues. And that was kind of like the sign of ooh, the demise, you know, the corporate it, corporations are taking over. And at that time, that all the corporations took over the the, the record companies, all the major, you know, they all just start, started yep. to uh, consolidate together and uh, buy one each other up. And yeah, it's, it's you know, I mean, we could go through the whole business of, of how that happened, but right, yeah. it's, it's a boring story and it's been told <laughs> like that, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it was great to live in those, those times and especially in the club days and seeing, you know, the very first shows of Metallica and seeing yeah. a band like that, not just Metallica and, and, you know, and the other thrash bands, Slayer and all these other bands, but, you know, all these bands kind of develop and go through. I mean, I was so fortunate to see, you know, the first shows of, of these bands, as well as the Guns N' Roses and, and uh, Great White and, uh, you know, all, all these different uh, uh, styles of, of, of bands and seeing them early on in the clubs. And uh, right. it was an exciting time because everyone was kind of on the same level back then. And I think it was the same yeah. in the Bay Area. You know, everyone was kind of on the same level. And then, uh, you know, uh, certain bands shot up and then certain bands uh, didn't. Uh, so, right. Well, I was just thinking when you were talking, um, well, <laughs> funny story, there is, a, to go to, you know, back to what you said with bands playing strip clubs, there was, uh, I grew up in New Hampshire, and there was this random place, it's, uh, half the building was a pool hall and concert venue, but there would be national bands that would play there, there'd be local bands that would play there, but there'd be national bands, like I saw a Double Driver there, and a, okay. a couple other metal bands, then you'd just, you know, you'd cross the hall and you were in a strip club. <laughs> yeah. It was the weirdest place. And I was like, how are, you know, how, I, I, I'm, I always thought like every time there's a national band that passed through them, they must be like, this is not at all what we expected. Or maybe it was because, you know, you're in New Hampshire. So maybe it was, <laughs> but, uh, and then I was also just thinking, I, I had the opportunity to go to San Francisco for the first time uh, a few years ago. And uh, so, you know, I wanted to check out all the old spots, all the Metallicons, knowing that a lot of them were not there. But, you know, there were times where you really had to use your imagination. Like, you know, I was like, I got to go see Battery Street. And then you get like your picture of the street sign. And then you're like, yeah, I guess that's the building they played in that's just it's just a building now <laughs> it was kind of depressing but but i i can imagine you know what it was like um you know back then when it was at its peak in your documentary barrier godfather says such a fantastic job of uh walking everybody through each part of it, it really breaks down the scene from the different bands to the clubs to the partying and everything in between and there were so many bands that are well known from that scene like metallica you had mentioned exodus and uh testament or legacy as they were called back then but then there's so all these other bands that um maybe had some crossover in terms of signing record deal then you have those other bands that are always just sort of doomed to being that local band never get a record deal so i'm curious as somebody who was not a part of um that bay area scene at the time but i know somebody but i know you were also kind of uh you know following it through the zines and stuff um uh, were there bands during the making of this documentary that you were like oh that that's a new band to me or uh, that 
what some of the more obscure bands that you learned maybe learned about and stood out to you were there any uh yeah um you know, uh, well, there's there's the band Stone Vengeance, who were a, an all black metal band that right. started in the late '70s, and they remind me a lot of a band from LA uh, called Sound Barrier, who were again, uh, uh, and they were one of they they were the first all black uh, hard rock band to be signed to a major label on MCA in oh, like yeah. 1981, I believe, uh, 81 or 82. Uh, and Stone Vengeance were kind of, uh, you know, they, they were uh, in the same boat, started in the late 70s. And and I had heard about them and read about them in some of the, you know, San Francisco zines like Metal Mania and whatnot. So I, I knew of them back in the day. Uh, but it was great that Danny, Danny Shipman, uh, you know, knew my coffee and we got him involved. So uh, that was one band that I wasn't. Uh, and another band that Danny helped to get was a Righteous Sire, who I uh, right. was only uh, available. I knew by name. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was interesting when we had Mark McGee and Tommy Cisco, you know, I knew them from vicious rumors, but I, I didn't realize, Oh, they were in overdrive. I remember hearing about yeah. overdrive and, and, and different bands. And of course, uh, you know, Doug Piercy, I, I remember from heathen and I never knew so much about Anvil chorus and to get him involved. Mm-hmm as well as Jerry, you know, the keyboard player. And, you know, they were a band that were very early on. Uh, Damage was another band. They were they were good friends with John Stranansky. We got had uh, Mick and Steve Gilbert. And they were, that was an interesting thing, because uh, 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 they came over from England in the late 70s. Right, yeah. From, from England, just, pri- you know, during the punk era, just prior to the new wave of British heavy metal. But they were like traditional metal, and they kind of fit right into the, whole uh bay area uh metal scene they came in right when that whole scene started to burst so uh and it was just fantastic that we got jason becker involved uh yeah. you know, although he wasn't involved in, in the early days of that scene of course cacophony and you know he grew up in the bay area and uh you know cacophony did some shows uh uh you know kind of during that time uh in the late 80s uh, playing there at the Stone, and he, we got him and Marty Friedman. But it was just such a joy to get to get uh, Jason involved in this. And uh, you know, we got Leather Leone. It, it, great to have another female get get a female perspective. You know, we had her, yeah. and of course Jerry, as I mentioned from uh, Anvil Chorus. Uh, and then it was so great. We had Bill Burkhardt just before he passed away, who was a huge. Yeah influence on the bay area scene he of course owned the record exchange which so many people talk about and we got bob gamber as well who worked at the record exchange Mm -hmm. as well as the record vault and uh, so they were they were crucial you know the record stores were crucial to that scene um you know peter marino from le mans he goes way back with with mike varney you know and we got a howard teeman and al teeman who were both in huge glam bands in the early 80s, uh, uh, Head On and Roadrunner, you know, that yeah. Metallica used to open up for. And uh, uh, Ian Callen, who was a partner of uh, uh, Ron, uh, Ron Quintana in Metal Mania and KUSF. So, uh, you know, we, we these were all people, I, a lot of these people I had known uh, in the past, Billy Rowe from Jet Boy. Uh, so it was great to get all these people uh, involved, Craig Beerhorst who played with the ruffians and uh, spent a short time in Laws rocket, you know, Jeff Thorpe from vicious rumors. So a lot of these guys, we had Bill Hale, who was a uh, Johnson mm-hmm. partner. Uh, so a lot of these guys, you know, John had known and, uh, you know, I had knew about, but I wasn't, I, I had, I hadn't met at the time. So it was kind yeah. of, 
great experience for me to get to know a lot of these guys. Uh, Jimmy Arsenault, who was a, a big promoter then. So we, we kind of got a lot of different perspectives from, you know, not just the artists, but from the promoters, the record store right. owners, the, the metal DJs, the fanzine uh, contributors. Yeah. And, and we wanted to get all, not just the thrash scene, you know, we wanted to get some of the glam bands, the power metal bands, and really get the whole vibe of how that whole hard rock metal scene was. You know, of course, of course people like uh, Mike Varney was crucial to the Bay Area. Yeah. Hard rock metal scene. So, um, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, as somebody who did not experience firsthand and was born a little bit later, you, you always hear about, uh, you know, LA being the glam hair scene and San Francisco being the thrash scene. And that while there's some truth to that, you explore that in your documentary about how, you know, there was a healthy, hair metal scene in San Francisco. There was, you know, traditional metal bands. It was just all kind of a blender of metal and hard rock. Um, and as we've already discussed, you know, like, you know, the, they would be at odds each other, but all get along. But it was interesting to hear about, you know, all the different dynamics, because I feel like as sort of an outsider of, uh, that scene, you always hear about Metallica in the thrash metal Bay area scene. And that's, kind of the extent of what you hear most of the time. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, again, why I thought it was important to have someone like a Jimmy Arsenault who booked the Omni, which was like the top venue to play in Oakland uh, at the time, the Omni and the stone. And that right. was like, you know, they would get, have national acts as well as the big club acts. So when, you know, Exodus and, and Testament and uh, uh, death angel were at their peak, you know, they would, headline there in front of, you know, six, 7,000 people. I'm at 700 people uh, or whatever. But, you know, what uh, Jimmy was saying at the time, he says, you know, we had glam bands and, and bands that I'm not even familiar with, Matt Anthony and, and uh, yeah. you know, uh, stuff like that, that uh, more hair metal bands that he said, uh, leather panties that would uh, sell just as many tickets as a lot of these uh, glam bands did. I mean, yeah. a lot of these thrash bands did. So uh, there definitely was a healthy scene. It just wasn't talked about. It was it was kind of, it was kind of the opposite, obviously in L.A. where the glam bands were the you know the Hollywood scene. Everyone talked about the glam bands. Nobody talked about the thrash bands. Although there were bands like you know Dark Angel and and of course you know Megadeth and Slayer and and even uh, Hyrax that were you know packing in Fender's ballroom and places like right. that you know 1200 people but you know little was talked about that it was kind of the opposite in the bay area it seemed that you know like cuz i i was kind of surprised by that i i knew vane were quite a big band as well yeah. as jet boy but you know jimmy was saying oh no we had we had a lot of these glam the glam nights would do huge huge numbers so it was definitely a big scene out there too you know so uh uh yeah and Lost rocket were one of the biggest bands uh, in the early 80s as far as uh you know attendance wise and stage show wise they would put on like a big kiss style you know they, you know kind of like what wasp did at the troubadour apparently uh, uh lost rocket did with bombs going off and different stuff in the club. so yeah stuff you could never ever never get now. away with that yeah <laughs> in one of the you you mentioned the record stores and when i was watching the documentary i I, you know, as much as uh, the fanboy nerd in me would love to go see, you know, early Metallica in a club or, you know, countless other bands at the beginning stages, it's such a, um, you know, rare 
thing to be able to experience unless you're like yourself and we're lucky enough to, you know, grow up and be a part of it. But one of the biggest things that stood out to me were those record stores. And I was like, man, I, I, it's hard. I, I think I was the last generation who really got to go to a record store and enjoy it and experience it and, you know, go to my local one and look through the records and CDs and discover new bands. Like I, I had that experience, which I will always cherish because I'm not sure that experience will ever return again. in, in, in the way, uh, at least the way I remember it, but I'll never be able to experience like those, ex- like the record vault, the record exchange. I was, I, it's hard for me being in a slightly later generation of, man, there was a whole metal record store. Yeah. It was just dedicated to metal. And that to me is uh, like mind blowing. And what I feel like I really missed the boat on and missing that scene. <laughs> yeah. I feel sorry for kids today that don't experience that can't and will never experience that, that feeling and that joy. And I was so envious in, in LA, we, we had a lot of record stores that had the metal imports, but we didn't yeah. have something like the record exchange or the record vault, which was all metal. And they were so spoiled because they had everything at their, you know, they had yeah. all the neat records, singles, all the new wave of British heavy metal imports, all the, you know, European uh, metal import from bands, you know, over there, the, you know, except Halloween, uh, you know, Bodine, uh, Picture, whatever, uh, the French man's trust, you know, uh, Ocean, all, all that stuff was easily available there. In L.A., we had to hunt that shit down, man. And in Orange yeah. County, there's a place called Music Market where um, I, I uh, you know, Lars used to, to shop there too, pre-Metallica, when he lived in Newport Beach. It was in Costa Mesa. And they would get in some, you know, some imports, but we would have to fight for, you know, to buy the last Kerrang! Or if they got a, uh, you know, an Angel Witch single in or something like that, they would only get one or two copies. So you, we had to go between there, and there was a place called Zed Records in Long Beach, which was pretty much a punk rock store because punk rock was a huge thing back then especially in orange county and the beach cities so uh but they would have motorhead and different imports there but the closest thing we had was oz records where brian slagle worked Mm -hmm. and he had a whole heavy metal section but that was in woodland hills which people would think is ludicrous now but we used to drive over an hour to go record store shopping in woodland hills uh, to go to Oz Records, you know, yeah. to get some of these things. So that's that's how exciting it was going to to record stores and just to discover something new was just was just great. And and I, and then I look back and seeing at the uh, you know San Francisco that they had these two major record stores where they catered to all that shit. It's like you motherfuckers, <laughs> you had it so easy. You know, we had to drive sixty miles here and then another yeah. thirty miles into Hollywood to go to. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, uh, Renee's All Ears or uh, some other record <laughs> store to pick this up. Yeah, it was. And yeah. I, if I'm remembering correctly, it was one of those two. I, maybe the Record Vault, if I'm remembering correctly. The, you'd be like, yeah, we even the magazines, you know, from Britain or whatever, you know, Kerrang! Like, oh, we did these unsanctioned Kerrang! Yeah. subscriptions. You could sign up. We'll send it to your house. And, you know, and like you were saying earlier, that's how you would discover so many of these bands, you know, that was the only way back then, you know, yeah. these magazines, fanzines and the tape trading, you know, and through college radio, that was the other thing that the Bay area had that we didn't really have. You had KUSF, which, you know, 
think about the Bay Area that don't know, like San Francisco is uh, very small geographically. It's a small city. It's huge as far as population because everything's built on top of each other. But geographically, it's pretty small. So you could have a radio station like KUS, uh, KUSF that could cater to the whole, you know, Bay Area community almost. But uh, and then they had other stations and, and you know, John Stranansky worked w with one in Monterey and others all over the outskirts in, in, you know, San Jose and whatnot. But in L.A., you know, you would have maybe a metal show on KUCI, which was in Irvine and South South Orange County, which you, you could only get within like a, a, a five to 10 mile radius, you know, so you didn't yeah. have the college stations out there. I and mean, the closest thing we had was uh, KNAC. And that wasn't until, you know, 85 or so when they did the pure rock format. But they weren't playing the underground stuff. They weren't playing demos like uh, like Ron Quintana was at KUSF or Ian Callen was. But uh, so that that was another thing that that they had out there. And that was a good way to to learn about these bands. Uh uh, through college radio and, of course, the fanzines. One of the other things that's really interesting, too, is just, you know, the appeal that San Francisco had to all these thrash metal bands. And, of course, we already know about Metallica, the story of them being in L.A. and then, you know, Cliff Burden wants them to relocate. They have already played there and had a good reception. They relocate. But... Your documentary also explores, you know, the story of the other big thrash bands that traveled up there, Slayer, Megadeth. You have uh, David Ellison does a wonderful job in the documentary of sort of telling that side of it and talking about how, you know, when Megadeth first formed, I think I think it, what was like the first five or six or so shows were in San Francisco, even though they were technically based in L.A. Right, right. Well, there weren't really clubs. Uh, the Hollywood clubs, once word got out about thrash metal, sure, you know, Slayer played the country club and some of these other places once they got bigger. Uh, but a lot of the new thrash metal bands coming out, Orange County was a lot more acceptive to uh, uh, the thrash bands. So a lot of these bands, you know, Metallica, Slayer, Dark Angel, um, uh, they all started out playing the Woodstock and Radio City and the Concert Factory in yeah. uh, Orange County because they would cater to the heavier bands. Whereas in Hollywood, the Hollywood clubs, uh, the club owners kind of frowned upon that. They didn't like the thrash bands in there because, you know, they had young kids, guys, you know, and when you have a right. bunch of guys in there, they, they usually, you know, they usually don't have a lot of money. They're not buying drinks. The clubs are in it to make money. So if you could get a band like Wasp and Steeler, that'll have a good mixed crowd of, you know, people over 21 uh, of women and and guys, you know, because guys are going to buy the women drinks and whatever and yeah. spend money, you know, that's what they were. So uh, the L.A. Uh, uh, clubs, in, especially in Hollywood, they did not want the thrash bands. You know, some of them would would play open up or or do the closing slot, you know, like Slayer would close a lot of the shows for Wasp at the Troubadour back in the early days. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would still have people, people, you know, left in the club because, you know, Slayer had that. Uh, that hardcore following even back early, early back then Abertor was another band that, that was a huge band locally, uh, kind of, uh, uh half, uh, they were a thrash band, uh, in their early age uh, stages. Um, so you did have a lot of that, but, uh, they LA clubs did not like it. That's why they had to go do the, uh, 
Fender's Ballroom and more the ghetto areas of, of Long Beach and uh, yeah. the Olympic Auditorium. There was a place called the Balboa Theater, which was just outside Watts, you know, in, in, in South Central. And uh, so they, these were scary neighborhoods. I, I wouldn't even go I, I went to fenders a few times but some of the others it was you know for a 16 17 year old kid going out to these shows or even i guess 18 19 i was at the time you know it, it was it was pretty risky and but those, those were the only places that these uh, bands were able to play where i think in in uh, san francisco was very much more open-minded the clubs yeah. were way more open-minded to the thrash because uh, they were making money from these thrash shows so the stone and the omni and uh, you know, uh, of course, you had the, the Waldorf and Ruthie's Inn, which did cater more to the death metal and, and the punk punk before, prior to that, uh, because, uh, you know, it was more of a rundown club that didn't really care. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, you know, when those bands started, a lot of them started playing there. But, you know, uh, once these bigger clubs like the Stone and the Omni saw that, hey, these bands are drawing big numbers. You know, they were booking, you know, the exoduses and all those, even though there might be some rowdiness and some some craziness, you know, it was worth it. Whereas the L.A. clubs, they just uh, they just, you know, they were making enough money doing the glam glam bands and, you know, right. the national bands. They didn't need that headache. And and then in, the other thing that was a big uh, a big point, I think William Howell brought up in one of the uh, documentary, The Rise of L.A. Thrash Metal. Is in LA, you know, everyone was so sue happy with the attorneys and insurance to to have insurance at these clubs because you know, do that Fender's ballrooms. There were there were stabbings. There were all sorts mm -hmm. of fights. People baking bottles over people's heads and people dying and shit. I remember. And you know, if if you're a club owner, you don't want that on your hands. You don't. You you, you know, right. The insurance yeah. itself is through the roof. You know, with these threats, so it's just not worth it for them to book uh, a lot of these uh, these thrash bands, you know, because they know that the glam nights or the hair metal kind of shows, you know, it'd be, it'd be kind of crazy, a lot of drunk people, but there wouldn't be any uh, any violence or injuries and, you know, not so much mayhem. So, you know, that I think that had a lot to do with it. You interview Lars for both parts of the documentary and in part two there is uh, an entire section dedicated to Metallica SRR for several of the other kind of key bands from that scene you know it's easy to kind of put Metallica uh, a bit on a pedestal above the other bands just because of the um, the career that they've had the amount of popularity that they've had in comparison but what do you think the importance of Metallica was to that Bay Area scene, both in the moment and in retrospect now in 2021 when we look back on it? Uh, well, I think just from the interviews itself, what the, what the artists say from, you know, uh, Eric Peterson uh, from Testament to uh, uh, so many of the other uh, artists, uh, uh, you know, Craig LeCicero to... Uh, um, you know, the guys in Death Angel to uh, uh, Craig Beerhorse, they all said, you know, when they first saw Metallica up there, uh, it, it was just, you know, mind blowing for them. You know, it was like, wow, this is what we were waiting for. You know, um, I, I can't really say because I, you know, I, I didn't see the reaction in the Bay Area when uh, Metallica first came right. there. But I remember when Ron Quintana first told me that when Metallica's first show there, he, he said, oh, dude, it was insane. There were hundreds of people, tons of people headbanging up front. I'm going, really? For Metallica? Because <laughs> I never, they, they never had that in L.A. 
you know, they yeah. were they started to get a, a fairly good following, but it wasn't, you know, this loyal following because you know, in in the in, in San Francisco, they were being played all the time on on the you know on KUSF and all these others. Right, so yeah. you had all these headbangers that were well familiar with the demo tape long before Kill 'Em All came out. So it was a different thing, and and all these people, you know, talk about how. Uh, uh, it changed, you know, and, and after Metallica, you know, uh, the artists themselves say that's when you saw Testament, you know, uh, uh, you know, start to explode. And uh, that's when, you know, that, you know, uh, Eric Peterson said that, you know, they were in more of a, a Motley Crue-ish or whatever kind of uh, bands back, you know, then. And then mm. they saw Metallica and it's like, wow, this is what we want to do. Doug Piercy from right. Man said the same wow i've always wanted to do this you know and and they're they're doing what we want to do and i think a lot of bands didn't realize that they could go you know really go that route and and uh yeah i think metallica showed that they could and be successful in in the bay area because like i said in la metallica was not it was not a big deal uh metallica uh, playing the la clubs you know and, yeah. and they weren't laughed upon like a lot of people said oh they were kind of laughed out of la it was just like people didn't really, you know, because, you know, to be honest, those early shows, you know, I've said it before. I might have said on, on the last time I was on here, they were not really that good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they, you know, the music was there, but they were still rusty. You know, again, you got to remember, they started out. Most local bands start out playing parties and, and playing the small yeah. places for like, a, a you know, months up to a year or so before they start doing the clubs. Metallica went right in their second show was opening for Saxon at the Whiskey, <laughs> right. which is huge. That was their second show ever. So, yeah. you know, they were very rusty on stage. They weren't, you know, I think by the time they got to the Bay Area, they started playing San Francisco, saw the receptance from the from the audience uh that's when they built their confidence because i remember after seeing them after they did those string of shows in the bay area you know they had come back and you know they they opened for uh y&t at the woodstock and i saw some mm -hmm. other shows i'm like god damn this band has gotten good really quick and i think yeah. that going to the bay area really gave them that confidence and and uh you know uh, it, it just changed you know they it was like damn, these guys are really, I, I could see these guys really making it at that point. It was funny to see two things that stood out to me in the documentary was um, somebody was saying, talking about the first time they saw Metallica or the first show that they played in San Francisco and the audience reaction where you had, uh, you know, the front of the stage just headbanging, going nuts, loving every second of it. And then everybody else just sort of standing back, watching, being like, what is this? Should is this punk? Is this metal? Do I like yeah. this? Should, am I supposed to like this? Because you you also explore. You know, we talked about the hair metal thrash metal, but we you know you also explore in the documentary the relationship between punk rock and metal. Right. Yeah, I think uh, Mark, Mark McGee mentioned that uh, how because uh, I yeah. think they opened for him. Uh, it was Lost Rocket Overdrive and and Metallica. Yeah was one of the first shows and and that's that's kind of how it was in LA a lot of people didn't know if Metallica were punk or metal of course we knew and nobody knew that they were doing all cover songs their whole set right. those early days yeah. was you know pretty much 80% Diamond Head and then they went a song by Blitzkrieg Sweet Savage and Savage in there you know mm -hmm. but uh and people didn't know and they they even speeded it up the Diamond Head songs and everything else so 
they kind of sounded, I mean, I mean, to me, I could tell the difference. It wasn't punk, but you yeah. know, back then you didn't have metal that was that fast. So people kind of, you know, what is this punk? Is this, you know, <laughs> then of course it's all dudes in the audience. And I think Alan Tiemann <laughs> made a point. It's like, what, who would want to do this? Have a band and just have nothing but dudes in your audience. Headbanging. What's it? You know, it's like, well, what, what? <laughs> I don't right. want to do this, you know? Well, and, like, like I said before, I think it was Peter Marino from Le Mans is, is the one who said Lars goes up to him and says, you know, I don't like your band. Yeah. I think you guys suck. But we're going to play a show with you because you guys have the girls. <laughs> exactly. Peter was great, man. He's such a character. Man. Yeah, he, he stood out to me because he just has so much uh, charisma. Yeah, we did it for the chicks. That it worked. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they were honest. I think back then that's that's kind of what it was all about. I think, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Metallica had that integrity. They wanted to be Motorhead. They, they didn't care. They just wanted to be heavy, ugly, mean, and nasty. You know, it wasn't about, uh, you know, being pretty and being liked by, you know, the, the mainstream, you know. So, you know, back then it was, uh, you know, again, this is before – you know, the, the, I mean, the, the closest you had was was Venom, you know, and they were from England. Right. They didn't come out here at the time. So in the States, you know, Metallica were, you know, you know, this is pre Slayer. They were the, were the first to really kind of come off like that. I mean, of course, you know, us from the underground, we had already seen Motorhead, you know, uh, play through here, opening up for Blizzard yeah. of Oz and, and uh, Iron Maiden coming in on the Killers tour and stuff. But uh you know as far as a local level there weren't bands like that uh like metallica either in la or the you know it's funny because everyone thought about the bay area being this 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 thrash metal uh mecca but it was really metallica that brought that up because if you look pre uh pre thrash pre metallica in the bay area you know i use this as an example you look at the compilation records from uh, shrapnel records from mike varney the u.s metal records you mm -hmm. compare that to the uh metal massacre records because they both came out relatively at the same time mike varney was the first in the states to do a, a metal label and metal compilation which mm -hmm. you know they, they were both inspired by the metal for mothers and the, all the british metal compilations right. but when they came out when uh the first metal mask of, of course mike varney geared it more toward guitar players mm -hmm. but the Metal Massacre series in LA was much heavier and 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 thrashier than the um, uh, Bay Area bands. More the Bay Area bands, it was very much of a progressive rock vibe. You know, really heavy on the guitar and a little bit more progressive into that. Uh, I wouldn't say hippie-ish, but just kind of that. You know, uh, early Journey progressive. You know, Anvil right. Chorus was doing the progressive mm -hmm. thing with the keyboard. And that was more of a bigger thing in the Bay Area until Metallica came, and then the, it kind of oh, turned over to thrash. But it wasn't like oh, the Bay Area it was always thrash. It was you know it it you know morphed into that. And I do think Metallica had a, a lot, and I mean a lot to do with that changeover because people saw them you know for the first time out there, and they saw that they had this fan base you know from the uh, you know KUSF and and the fanzines and whatnot. And it's like, God damn, these, this is what I want to do. And that's when it changed over, I think. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear from uh, a lot of the artists that spoke, you know, because you are keeping tabs on everybody from the scene, even when they leave and sign their record deal and whatever. And, um, you know, a lot of the artists were saying how kept their tabs on Metallica and be like, oh, 
you know, in retrospect, we realized we were just sort of trying to become them in a way, you know, Oh, they did a ballad. We'll do a ballad. They did this. We'll do this. Yeah. And, and, and you see that so much in so many music scenes, but it was very interesting to hear it from the artists themselves and with kind of, you know, looking back on it and be like in kind of dissecting it themselves. Yeah, I think Craig LeCicero from Forbidden makes a good point on that and how he says everyone kind of jumped the shark, uh, so yeah. to speak, at, at at the end. And that's how it was. And, that, you know, of course, there was a lot of pressure from the major labels and whatnot. And the power ballad thing was huge. And, of course, you know, as you mentioned earlier, when they got Bob Rock, you could have said, you know, uh, these these power ballads that they did with nothing else matters and and even the Unforgiven to an extent, although that was much darker. But, you know, that was very much in line with what was going on with the, uh, you know, the the slaughters and the white snakes and all these other right. bands that were doing the power power ballads at the time. And the record company saw that as an opportunity. And I think the thrash bands, you know, did it more of a darker, you know, like Testament Return to serenity or uh, sure, yeah. uh, you know, and all these other bands, you know, they did. But, you know, as, as Craig had said, everyone kind of did that you know, did some kind of a ballad or something, uh, right. except Exodus. Exodus always had that thing, you know. Uh, they, I remember they had shirts out, four albums and still no ballad. Or <laughs> something. Kind of ridiculous, but it was kind of funny. But, uh, but yeah, everyone else pretty much did, and I think everyone wanted to get to that point. I mean, look at everyone wants to be successful as a band, right. and uh, you know, that's why you're in it in the first place. And there's, you know, you can still keep your integrity and write, you know. I mean, yeah. Armored Saint's a perfect example. They write fucking amazing ballads from the yep. beginning from you know no reason to live off their first demo tape and the first ep on through you know uh the current today to the latest sound they've always been a band that could show that kind of diversity and there's 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 absolutely nothing wrong and, and they're not power ballads like the 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 keyboardy that that right. wish washy yeah, yeah. kind of key you know white snaky power ballads these these are still heavy dark uh ballads and uh uh, yeah, but that, that, you know, uh, you know, obviously there was that time when Metallica, you know, nothing else matters and stuff really crossed over and didn't it become like uh, elevator music? Didn't Muzak do something with it or something? <laughs> I, I think they actually did. They did. Like, yeah, I think they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's one of those songs now that, um, just sort of everybody, it, it's kind of like interesting where you just hear it everywhere now and. It's just one of those songs, but I mean, it's funny to see them go there and then see in, in Bay Area Godfathers where it all began. And you know, you go into great detail about, like I said before, so many key bands there. Um, some well known you've already mentioned: Exodus, Testament, Death Angel. Um, I think those are probably the biggest, most prevalent ones for people who are into Metallica and that thrash metal scene. But you go into Y&T and you go into other bands that are, are much more obscure and it's really just a great watch and it's very uh well put together and I, if i i like to think that uh because i'm a nerd about these things and i've done my homework and research about uh you know metal history i like to think i'm i'm fairly knowledgeable but i i definitely learned uh, a lot from watching both parts well, thanks, man. That's that's kind of the idea behind the uh, 
uh, really the whole Inside Metal series, I've learned a lot from it, from uh, especially in the early years when you know, I did the first and the Pioneers, because that was, you know, I was a little bit too too young to experience the Starwood and you know that right. whole Van Halen era, you know, of, of the club yeah. scene. Uh, and we go back in this one as well, you know, as you know, in, in the first part, we go back to the early yesterday and today shows. We didn't yeah. quite touch on Montrose and some of those other bands, but, you know, we, we do go back to the 70s. Yeah, talk about early journey there. a little bit. and Right, exactly. And that's kind of how, you know, how the whole scene evolved. You got to talk about those bands and how the metal scene evolved. And that's how we go right. through. And of course, part two. Uh, which will be coming out in May, uh, people, part two of Bay Area Godfathers. It was supposed to come out last month in uh, uh, March. Uh, to be honest, with there were some issues with the audio on on for the streaming, so uh, we had to go back and contact our editor. It was a nightmare. He was in New York at the time. We had to fish through <laughs> his storage unit to get the hard drive to oh, get the God, master. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, oh, dude, it was just a pain in the ass. But the QC, <laughs> they bounced it back. Oh, there's some audio issues here we have to fix. So anyway, that's that's what the delay is for people questioning. Uh, but it will be coming out in May, it looks awesome. like. And uh, the DVD might actually be uh, available. I know it's at least on pre-orders you could get on, on, on Amazon. But as for the streaming, uh, yeah, look for it. It'll be in the same places that the... First one was on Amazon Prime, Google Play, Vudu, uh, Apple, Apple Movies. So it will be readily available th through streaming. Uh, and uh, of course, part two does, as you mentioned, as the chat bands uh, that we get more involved in, you know, uh, Metallica, Exodus, yeah. uh, a few of the bands that a lot of people talk about that we couldn't really fit in. We just put all, their own chapter yesterday and today, Laws Rocket. And then mm -hmm. we get into the whole debauchery of the scene, uh, <laughs> you know, the parties. And, the and there are some stories, especially with Paul Bailoff from Exodus. There are some stories. He was, in there. <laughs> he was like the ringleader of the, of the Bay Area thrashy, no question. Yeah. You know, as big as Metallica was, I think Paul Bailoff was the most notorious yeah. person. And I think Metallica guys would even admit it as far as, you know, <laughs> if, if you looked at Bay Area thrash, it would be a picture of him yeah. in it. You know, he was yeah, the totally. spokesperson. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a lot of crazy Bailoff stories. And, and it was fun. It was fun for me that grew up in L.A. that heard about all these stories. And, you know, again, I kind of kicked myself in the ass for not not experiencing it back then, you right. know, making taking the balls to go up to the Bay Area and spend a few days out there. But uh, it's fun. That's what these uh, these are about is to bring the uh, listener or the watcher back in time and to experience that, especially people like you or other people in, in the Midwest or wherever or in other parts of the world that never experienced a big city kind of metal scene, yeah. uh, you know, whether it be LA or uh, New York or, or the mm -hmm. Bay area, you know, and, uh, cause it was a community, it was a whole scene. And, you know, people always go, wow, man, that, that just, just, you know, it blows my mind how, how it was back then. And it's like, yeah. And, you know, a lot of these people, you know, it's great to document it now, especially, you know, you know, like I mentioned, since this documentary, certain people have passed away, like Bill Burkhardt, you know, right. so a lot yeah. of these people are going and it's and there's so much to document about these these this scene because it'll never happen again. The younger generation and, and you know, I say younger generation, even people in their 20s and 30s will never experience or never have an idea of what rock and roll and metal that scene 
was about, you know, whether it be mm-hmm. the, the the clubs, the record stores, the fanzines, the you know, the camaraderie, the the, right. the parties, the craziness, going out every night of the week to metal shows, going to see big, huge bands at the uh, Long Beach Arena and having a giant party in the parking lot, you know, uh, prior to the show, and uh, you know that kind of stuff. You know, it's important to document that stuff, I think. So that that's what the Inside Metal series is all about. And I think the Bay Area Godfathers, you know, of, of course, all the Inside Metal are, are two volumes. We got, as I mentioned, a, a part two coming out in May. I think, uh, you know, both part one and part two really explore that uh, scene of the Bay Area, of not just the thrash scene, but the overall hard rock and metal scene from the late 70s into the mid 90s. Well, and as a metal fan, I think it's really important that this stuff is documented in this form because, you know, metal, even though we have the Metallicas and as a genre, it's been so successful and it's still kind of the bastard child of popular music and uh, even of rock and roll, I think, you know, especially when you get into um, some of the more extreme metal stuff and everything, but it, th- there's not a lot of people I think willing, even though there's a big audience for it, there's not a lot of people willing to t- kind of take a, uh, his to put this music under an historical lens, unless maybe you have like, you know, of course there's some exceptions like a black Sabbath maybe, or, or Metallica, but as in terms of the music scenes as, as a whole, and, and some of these more obscure bands that were a big part of these scenes, there's not a, a, enough people willing to do it. And that's all thanks to, you know, your passion and drive. So I think it's a real service to uh, the male community. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Brandon. That means a lot to me. Uh, and that's really the idea of 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 doing these. And then initial thing, it wasn't, you know, uh, to get rich and be this big filmmaker kind of guy. It was, uh, you know, I was, you know, I'm I'm 56 years old now. And I started my fanzine when I was 17. And that was always my goal is just to kind of cater. You know, I was a big metal guy and I just and it's really that's what I've done with this documentary is not much different than what I did, you know, 35, 40 years ago with the metal fans. Right, yeah. You know, it's yeah, just yeah. to document something. And then this gives it more of a visual, uh, you know, angle and uh, available worldwide on, on digital for. And there are some great things about digital format. People could watch this movie and I've got, you know, emails and responses from people all over the world that have seen this on some kind of a digital format or on DVD. And, uh, they, you know, it's, it, it just blows my mind. You know, I, I did, a a, a, a thing in Finland, Finland, believe it or not, the university of Helsinki has a heavy metal course at their awesome. college. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And I did a Skype, uh, uh, uh lecture, Oh, wow. I'm looking at the crowd and it's all, you know, young college kids. Yeah, it's and they knew more about metal than I did. The L.A. (laughs) They're asking all these questions about malice and warrior and all these guys. Like, how do you Finland? How the fuck do you know this shit? But like, that's a whole different story. I guess Finland, like metal, metal is the mainstream music there. And it's uh, it's it's a big thing. But that was a lot of fun. And there must have been a you know, over a hundred kids in this lecture. Cause I'm, they're showing the camera and it's like, yeah. holy shit, you know, <laughs> this is really cool. 
<laughs> that is awesome. And I think I, I'm a little bit biased when I say this, but I think also podcasts in 2021 are a great way to kind awesome. of uh, celebrate the music and stuff, including your own. So can you also, I, I mentioned at the start, but please plug where everybody can find uh, Shockwave Skull Sessions as well. Yeah, it's a Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. And, uh, you know, you can still get it. Uh, we, we've kept the URL. It'll, it'll just revert. Uh, it's uh, Shockwaves, plural, shockwaveskullsessions.com. And that'll revert to the CMS podcast network. Uh, you know, my partner, Matt, who's who's the producer, I stay out of all the uh, technical aspect of it. I'm a simpleton when it comes to all that. So You're so I lucky, have, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I, hate, I hate posted shit. I hate that social media and all that. It's like, no, I, I just I love the creativeness of doing the podcast and whatnot. Yeah. So he got us involved in the CMS podcast network since uh you know, we were paying money on, on, on you know, at the points on, on Spreaker and whatnot. Anyway, it's mm-hmm. a long story. So we're a part of this uh, podcast network, which has actually expanded our audience uh, greatly, which is a, a real cool thing. Awesome. Uh, but, you know, again, to make it simple, just go to shockwaveskullsessions.com uh, and that'll take you to all the episodes there. And I also do another secondary podcast on hardradio.com, which, you know, I post interviews up every other month or so. Uh, but uh, that's why I just posted a Jeff Coleman uh, interview on okay, that as yeah. well. So a great guitar player. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I you know I like I, I like keeping busy and doing that and promoting good classic metal. Oh yeah, well fantastic, Bob. This was so much fun and it was great having you back. And like I said last time, and I mean it, you are welcome back anytime. Well, do if there's anything uh, else to uh, you know talk about or explore in the future, I'll definitely let you know. In the meantime, people put in those pre-orders for Bay Area Godfathers Two. Uh, again, you can check out the DVD on Amazon. Uh, it should be coming out anytime on DVD. Uh, you know, through through Amazon, Walmart.com, Best Buy.com, any place you can buy DVDs. Uh, if you want to get the there, there's some uh, bonus uh, footage on the DVDs, which is always fun. Or you can get it streaming online. It should be streaming real soon. So uh, awesome! I definitely check that out. And I will have the links in the episode description, so it's just a click away for everybody listening. So definitely check it out. I I highly recommend it. I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to Bob right now. It's really good, both parts. It's you know like a three-hour package if you watch both parts and it's well worth it um and if you have any interest in the bay area metal scene and if you're listening to this podcast a podcast about metallica i think that you definitely definitely do seeing how they were such a huge part of it so again bob i thank you so much and i hope to have you back soon absolutely well thank you again brandon i always appreciate your support anytime bob thank you bye Bye-bye.
A big thank you to Bob Nabandian for coming back on Metallicast. Check out the links in the description to his latest documentary, Bay Area Godfathers. Part 1 is out now. Part 2 will be out very soon. There is also a link to his superb podcast, Shockwave Skull Sessions. So please check that out. If you are new to Metallicast, first of all, welcome to the Metallicast Manisha. If you'd be so kind, please... Leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, download, all that good stuff. All that goes a long way in helping the podcast continue to grow and help me get great guests like Bob Nabandian on the show. Please also give me a follow on social media at MetallicastPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, may it be rare. I'll see you. Yeah. Fans, not experts.